Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Grab your Bibles if you have them with you. Go ahead and uh, turn to Book of Ruth, chapter three, this morning, and uh, that's where we're going to dive in here in just a little bit. We've been in this uh, in this series. Hopefully, you've been able to be here for the first two messages. Maybe you've missed one or two, but we've been working uh, this series from the knowledge uh, that every good love story has some like main ingredients to it, right? And for instance, in every good love story, you have uh, some really compelling characters that are deeply conflicted. Right, uh, especially in this this story of Ruth, you had some you had some characters that there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of tragedy that's taking place in Naomi and Ruth's life, both being widows that seemed like they were destitute back in the ancient days with no hope of redemption, no hope of help. They were kind of like just there waiting to kind of die, kind of just living off of whatever they could grab. It was just kind of a, 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 an existence of just trying to survive now that all their hopes seemed to be gone. And then you had Boaz, who was kind of a different kind of guy back then in the days of the judges. He wasn't necessarily a, a bloodthirsty kind of guy. He was a guy who was marked to have great integrity. He was faithful to God in a time when most people just did what was right in their own eyes, uh, as the book of Judges says. Uh, but here's Boaz, who's a righteous man. He's got integrity. And also he comes from a home that is, uh, that is kind of a, a multiracial home or a multicultural home. Uh, he had one parent who was Jewish, one parent uh, who was a Gentile. And so that kind of left his eyes open to the prospects of accepting someone who was from another land such as Ruth. So you see this conflict in these people. And then we saw last week uh, the other important ingredient to a love story, which is the meet cute. And that's when the two, the two main characters of the story kind of meet each other for the first time. And usually it's in some way that's just, you, you just don't, uh, it just doesn't normally happen. It's really romantic or it's by happenstance. And you realize that you kind of give into the notion that there are forces at work outside of these two people that seem to be pushing them together into a love connection. Um, because we saw in, the, in chapter two last week that there was a lot of just so happened kind of moments for Boaz and for Ruth, right? I mean, for instance, you see that Ruth just so happens to go foraging in this field for grain, and the field just so happens to belong to Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of Elimelech, who just so happened to be the deceased husband of Naomi, right? And Boaz just so happens uh, to uh, be single and ready to mingle because he just so happens to notice Ruth out there in the field and take notice of her who just so happened to be there in that field that day as Boaz just so happened to be in that field to look at it, uh, to, to come and see her. So a lot of just so happens, a lot of things kind of pushing them together. And we realize it's not just coincidence. It's not just happenstance. It's God at work, right? Because he has a plan and he has a purpose for everything. And in every good love story, there's another ingredient that comes into play for a lot of people if they're writing a story or if they're making a movie, a, a romance movie, and that is this. There always has to be the moment where you have the final declaration of love. You have to have these two characters finally say, yeah, I have feelings for you, and they have to finally notice that. They may try to fight it. They may try to ignore it. Others may try to hold it at bay. Whatever may happen, but there is always at least this moment where there is a declaration of yeah, I got my eyes on you, or yes, I love you. All of this just so happened, all these coincidences has led us together to where we have found one another and we're committing to one another. And in most people's opinion, the most, um, I guess the most significant declaration of love is usually the wedding proposal, right? 
you've come to this point where you realize this is my one and only. This is my person, all right? Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to propose. All right, I did a little research this week, and I also looked up a couple of the worst ways somebody has proposed. And if you've done this, I'm not saying that to, like, you know, make you feel bad, but, but I hope nobody's done this. There was a guy, he was a lawyer, and uh, he made a deal with several policemen in town to har- arrest his girlfriend on some false charges. All right, so just developed some sort of trumped-up charges. They waited for her car to go by on the way to work. They pulled her over, and it was more than just a traffic stop. They said, ma'am, you have, you know, they've, they've throw out all these charges and all these laws and say, you've got to come downtown with us. Uh, We're going to have to do some more talking. So during the talking, they actually end up booking her and throwing her into the holding cell. And then they tell her she gets her one call. Well, she calls, of course, her boyfriend, not so much because it's her boyfriend, but because he's a lawyer and she's thinking, all right, he knows what to do. He runs down there, meets with her as, as her lawyer and says, I've talked with the guys and they've worked out a deal. The only way that you can get out of jail today is if you'll marry me. Yeah, it doesn't work very well, does it? Uh, the other one was this one guy. Um, this one guy decided that he was going to fake his own death. And he, his best friends were, uh, were morticians. They owned a funeral parlor. Now, that's, that's usually tip number one, ladies. If your boyfriend's best friends hang out at the funeral parlor, that's probably not a guy you want to be around. But he got his friends together, and he faked his own death, went through the whole bit, got his, got his uh, obituary written up into the newspaper, everything, set up a visitation. They laid him out in a casket. He had his best suit on and everything, had an entire visitation. The whole town thought he was dead. As his girlfriend is standing there and people are walking by and she's sobbing, he sits up and has the ring in his hand and proposes marriage to her. She slapped him and then said, yes, I don't know what's wrong with her, but whatever. But this is not the way to propose, okay? You don't scare someone to death. You just, you actually, you want to declare love, not make them hate you in the way that you propose to them. So today in in our text, our text kind of moves into that declaration of love moment, okay? And uh, we, see kind of, um, we see kind of an interesting proposal that takes place. Before we jump into that, let's look at verse number 23 of chapter 2, because this kind of gives us an understanding of where we're at, all right? In verse 23, it says, So she kept fast, speaking of Ruth, by the maidens of Boaz, to glean into the end of the barley harvest and of the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law there. Now, this piece, or this verse is a, is a transitional piece in the narrative of the story. Because what took place in verse number 23 is a period of about two to three months. Because she met, she met Boaz, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest season. In verse number 23, it says that she stays and she works in the field all the way to the end of the barley harvest season, which took about two to three months uh, in time. So by that time, there's a lot of interactions that take place between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, We're led to believe that that dinner that they had last week in chapter 2, that kind of took place more than once. She was invited in to do that. She was invited also to glean from the best crops, which means she had to be close and near where Boaz was. Remember in verse number 9 of chapter 2, he had said, you can come get a drink of water uh, from up here where I'm at anytime you want to. So more than likely, she's going up, and he's probably thinking, man, this is the least hydrated girl I've ever seen in my life because she's always coming to get some water. There's all of these interactions taking place between Ruth and Boaz. And probably his staff has kind of gotten, has kind of lost count of the number of times that they've had lunch together, the number of times they've had an interaction. And they're wondering too, this guy's a landowner. He owns a lot of fields. Why is he here at this field like every day? He's at this field more than he's ever been at any other harvest season uh, that we can even think of. 
So there's a lot going on, and people are beginning to take notice, too, that there's a romance that's kind of that's kicking up between them. But here in verse 23, we see that there's some drama because the end of barley harvest has happened. And what that means is Ruth and Boaz are going to have to part ways. Because harvest season is over with, that means that their romance might be over with, too. There's not a lot more just-so-happened moments that's going to take place. And that's where we pick up in verse number 3. The kinsman redeemer that we looked at, which we know that Boaz is, the kinsman redeemer, and here was, here was basically what happened with a kinsman redeemer. In those days, if you were in debt, your property would be deeded out to somebody else in order to pay off those debts. Now, if you got back the money that you could buy that field back, you had first right to be able to buy it back. And somebody could come along and outbid you, but you had the right to go and buy that property back because you were the original owner. If you couldn't buy that property back, but someone who was a relative decided they would buy it for you, then you could have that land because a kinsman redeemer would step in and do that. Usually it meant a marriage relationship when a kinsman redeemer would step in and do that. Now, in order to be a kinsman redeemer, you had to have three things. Number one, you had to have the resources in order to do it. You had to have the money to be able to buy the field. You also had to have the right. You had to be related, and you had to be the closest living relative in order to do this. And the other thing you had to have was the resolve. You had to be willing to do this. You had to be willing to pay that money out and redeem this field for your family member that was in trouble. Well, Naomi, when they left, when they left Bethlehem, Elimelech owned this field. But when he left, he forfeited that over. But now that she's come back, she can try to buy that field back. But there's no, help, there's no hope for her to do that because she has no money. The only hope now is that there would be a redeemer that would stand in to buy that field back. And now we know that Boaz has the right He's a relative. We know that Boaz has the resources. He's a wealthy landowner. And so we have to find out now, does he have the resolve? Does he want to buy that field back? Does he want to redeem the family? Does he want to marry Ruth? And so we look at verse number one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, Ruth, my daughter, shall not I seek rest for, the, for you? Um, because that it may be well with you. Or what she's saying is, can, can I not find you a husband so that you're taken care of? And now is not Boaz of our kindred with whose maidens you worked, or have you been, you've been working with these female servants? So behold, tonight he winnows barley in the threshing floor. Now in the ancient agricultural system, the threshing floor meant something very important. The threshing floor, there was two stages of the harvest season. First, you had the harvest where you went in and you, you grabbed your grain and you let it all dry out from the stalk and then you would hold it and let it dry out. And then you would take it in the second phase to this place called the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was a place that was usually outside of town and it was on kind of an open area where a lot of wind could blow through at night. And they would take all of that, those dried stalks and they would throw them in this threshing floor, which basically was just a, a hole dug out in the ground. And they would then bring their mules and their donkeys and all those animals, and they would let them walk all over that grain to separate the grain from the, from the stalks, or what they called the chaff. So separating the wheat from the chaff. And as they did that, after they walked through and separated all that, they would take their pitchforks, and when it was windy outside, they would take their pitchforks and they would throw it up in the air. And the chaff was light enough that the wind would carry the chaff away, and the wheat, the stuff that they wanted to keep, the seed and the wheat, would fall back down into the threshing floor, and that was how they harvested all their grain. This is the stage of the season that they're in. They're at the very end of harvest season. And usually the winnowing period was so important because that was the livelihood of the landowner. So the landowner would be the one who oversaw all of the winnowing. And because it was valuable, it was basically their livelihood at that point, being out in the outside of town, there was not a lot of security at that point. So the landowner would basically spend the night with all of his winnowed barley. 
And that's where we're at, and that's kind of the scene that's kind of set up for us. That's why Boaz is out in the middle of the night, out at the threshing floor, all alone because he's winnowing his barley and he's counting it all into his ledger books and he's getting ready to take it to market. And so here's what, here's what Naomi says. Boaz is going to be out there, so here's what you need to do, Ruth. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, or put on your best perfume, and put, your raiment, uh, put on your raiment upon you, or put on your best clothes, and get down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known unto the man until he is done eating and drinking. And it shall be that when he lies down, you will mark the place where he shall lie, and you shall not go in, or you shall go in and uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. And he will tell you then what you shall do. And he said unto her, All that you sayest unto me, I will do, Naomi. And she went down to the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and had drank and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of the corn. And she came softly and uncovered, or quietly or unknowingly, and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and he turned himself. And behold, there was a woman who was laying at his feet. Now, we're going to stop right there. And all I can say to this is, what? Like, are you, is anybody else looking at that going like, what in the world is going on here? This looks a little bit, this looks a little bit weird. The Bible has a lot of great examples for us to follow, but I do not recommend following Ruth's example in this situation, okay? Especially guys, let me tell you this. If you sneak in to, uh, to your beloved's home and you steal her blanket in the middle of the night without her knowing that, you are going to go to jail, okay? All right, that's, that's, just, that's just all I'm saying. Now, let's look at verse number nine. And he said, who are you? Now, remember, it's dark out there. There's no lights or anything. So he's like, who is this? He can tell it's a woman because he can smell the perfume, but he can't see the face. It's like, who are you? And she says, I am Ruth. I'm your handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt or take me under your wing as your handmaiden, for you are a near kinsman or you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, you may have missed it, but verse number nine is the proposal. All right. There's no ring. There's no romantic date. There's no fancy dinner. There's no getting down on one knee. Just some good old fashioned stalking and scaring the person that you loved absolutely to death. All right. That's 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 how you, you get every good proposal to go. Right. In all seriousness, though, Ruth makes a very important and proper request here. But we need to clear up some questions here that we might have. First of all, is this proper? So we were looking at this and like, is this proper? She comes to this guy at the very, in the middle of the night and scares him to death. Is this, is this a proper thing to do? Is it proper for Ruth to be proposing to, to Boaz? Actually, yes. And especially in this situation, because remember that Ruth is a, is a widow. And in those days, widows had to go into a time of legal mourning and grieving. And for a man to approach a widow in the time of her mourning and grieving was considered to be illegal because she is saying, my heart still belongs to my husband who is deceased. And what would happen is a widow would have to make a public acknowledgement to a man if she was interested in that man that I am now available again and I desire you. So in this instance, if Ruth had just been a single woman, Boaz would need to initiate the marriage. But in this situation, since Ruth is a widow, she's the one who legally has to initiate the conversation. So this takes place in a proper way. Now, the second question is, is this just a little bit like like risque. I mean, what's really going on here? This kind of makes me feel like there's something a little off color going on. So is that what's going on? The answer to that is no. Remember the Bible makes mention so many times throughout this passage of how much integrity and how much character both Boaz and Ruth have. They're not people with a lack of integrity. They have character and they do things properly. And so they're thinking, well, why does she come in the middle of the night? This is the most respectful way that Ruth could come and tell Boaz that she is now available because Boaz is always around people. 
This is the only time that she knew that he would actually be alone. Again, because winnowing was the work of the landowner and the landowner only. And so she knew that he would be there and that he would be alone and that she would be able to talk to him about this. And the reason she does that is because she does not want to embarrass him or put him on the spot in case he wants to reject her request. To put him on that spot would make him kind of look bad in the eyes of some of the other people in the town. Also, what we have to make mention of is the fact that in all of this, she never touches him. There's no indication that there's any seduction going on or anything like that. The Bible says that she literally just takes his blanket off of his feet. The reason she does that is because if you've ever woken up at night and your feet are freezing, that's why. Because when you're asleep and you're tucked in and your feet fall out of the bed, it's going to wake you up. So it allowed him to wake up. She doesn't come to him and wake him up in any seductive way. She allows nature to take its course, and she's laying at his feet, not in a place where any contact could be taking place. And so we see that everything is taking place in a proper way. It's taking place in a, in a respectful way. Now let's consider what the request is. She asked Boaz to spread his skirt, and what it really means is to take me under your wing. He's not, she's not asking, hey, put your blanket over me because I'm cold too. What she's saying is symbolically, take me under your wing as your redeemer. I want you to be my husband. I want to come under your household. I want to be your wife, and I want you to be my redeemer. So she comes to him specifically asking this, and Ruth is declaring she's no longer in mourning. She's no longer uh, uh, troubled over the death of her husband, and she is ready to marry again. Now, if he doesn't want to marry her, that's okay. He can tell her that, and she'll leave, and they won't speak of it again, and Boaz can keep and save face in the city with the elders. Now, in verse number 10, let's look at this. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown me more kindness in the latter end than in the beginning, inasmuch as you followed not young men, whether poor or rich. And then he says in verse number 11, And now, my daughter, fear not, because I will do for thee all that you have required or all that you have asked. Don't worry, I will do for you whatever you say, Ruth. Now, let's translate that a little bit more. Boaz has got it bad for Ruth. Whatever you say, sweetheart, I'll do whatever you ask. I've been waiting for this moment. And then it says, because all the city of my people knows that you are a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am your near kinsman. Howbeit there is a kinsman that is nearer than I. And this is when some of the dramatic music starts to play because there's a little obstacle standing in the way. And he says this, tarry this night or spend the night here. And it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of the kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman, then I will do the part of the kinsman. As the Lord lives, and he basically, he brings God's name into it. He makes an oath to her. As the Lord lives, and I'm placing my integrity on the line, I will keep my word. I will marry you. And so he says, lie down in the morning. She laid at his feet, not beside him. She laid at his feet, another symbol of the fact that everything was proper. Until the morning, she rose up before anyone could know one another, before anybody could see each other. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the floor. And also he said, bring me the veil that you have upon you and hold it out or hold out your shawl or your scarf. And when she held it out, she measured out six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city. Now the question is, a lot of people are saying, why does he invite her to spend the night? Isn't that a little forward of him? Are things maybe getting improper at this point? And the answer is no. Because remember, the threshing floor is outside the town. She had to come a long way at the end of the day to do that, but to send her back at midnight in the middle of the night as a single woman back into the village past, past whoever knows would have been scary for her and would have been dangerous for her. So this was an act of protection. In the morning, they wake up and make sure that she goes on her way before anybody else could have arrived to see so that he holds her reputation intact. 
and his reputation too. Then the other thing that he does is he provides for her too. He says, before you leave, I want to give you some grain. Now, this is important. Up until now, she had been, she had been going in and, and getting all the stuff that was left over, basically, off of Leverett Law. He had already gone one step further and said, you can grab whatever falls off my stalks. This time, he reaches down into the threshing floor, into his cash, basically, and he gives her of his cash. What he's saying to her is, you are mine, and you can now get the blessings of my household. I mean, it's, it wasn't like he'd had, and basically he's saying this barley's going to have to do until I can get over to Tiffany or Jared in time to get a ring on it or something like that. It's basically what he's saying here. It's a beautiful story there, right? And so then in verse number 16, it says, she came back to her mother-in-law and she said, and her mother-in-law says, who are you, my daughter? Basically what she's saying is, so did it work? And he told her, and she told her that the man had done, had done for her. And she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, do not go empty to your mother-in-law. And she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will fall, for the man will not rest until he has finished the thing this day. Basically, wait patiently, Ruth, because there's still an obstacle that Boaz must overcome to have your love, but do not fear because he will not rest until it comes to pass. So as far as proposals go, how do you think that one pans out? Now, does that help to clear up a little bit about when you read it? Like, okay, something's weird here, something's not. This is kind of like all kind of how everything plays out. But I want to transition this morning very quickly in the time that we have left into how does this all apply to me? What does this mean for me? Obviously, culture was very different at that time. So how does this really apply to my life? Because I believe this, that the Bible is completely applicable today. Even though it is ancient in its context, it is fresh and applicable today as well. And I also believe, and we've been working from this understanding, that we can find Jesus in every page and in every word of Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament. And hopefully it's dawned on you by now that Boaz is kind of a picture of Jesus. Ruth is a picture of, of us in our need for Jesus. Naomi is a picture of someone who has had a relationship with Christ but has kind of wandered away, and she's being restored by seeing how good God is and, and that he has never left or never forsaken so there's a few things this morning that as we turn the corner in this declaration of love that we need to see about our kinsman redeemer, about Jesus Christ and how he loves us. And the first thing is this, is that when you come to Jesus, everything changes. You say, hold on, that was last week's last point, and it is, because it transitions into the same teaching and understanding the same thing. When you come to Jesus, and by the way, we must come to Jesus, the point that we cannot forget and miss here is, that even though it was, highly, it was highly unusual for Ruth to come to Boaz to declare the love first, it was something that was expected at that time. It wasn't something that was normally practiced, but it was something that was done. It is something that God wants us to do. God has laid redemption out for all of us, but we must come to him. Ruth coming to Boaz is a lot like how we must come to Jesus. And when we come to Jesus, here's what happens. Everything changes. Look at verse number three again. Before she goes, Naomi says, wash, put on your perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, and then what? Go. Go down to the threshing floor. Go to him. Go to Boaz. When you come to Jesus, everything will change. Naomi's advice to Ruth runs a lot deeper than just, hey, make sure you look good before you go get your man. That's not just what she's saying here. This advice was basically telling Naomi telling Ruth, a Moabite who didn't understand Jewish tradition, here's how you as a widow make yourself known to Boaz and make your intentions known. You need to wash, you need to clean up, you need to put on perfume, and then you need to put on your best clothes. And what she's really saying to her is, don't wear your clothes of mourning anymore. 
Don't wear your, 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 your sorrow clothes anymore. Put on your good clothes so, she, so he knows that you want him. So he knows that you are past your stage of grieving, you are past your stage of mourning, and you want to become his wife. Now, there's some interesting things that we have to understand from this. She's moving from a life that is marked by death to a life that would be marked by redemption and love. For her to change her clothes out of those clothes of mourning is moving from this life that was characterized by death and sorrow and tragedy to a life that is now characterized by hope and redemption and love and provision. Now, how does that apply to us? I hope that it's kind of obvious to us, right? We have to remember when we're born, we're born in our, dead in our trespasses and sins. And the Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And he says, old things are passed away, and the new has come, and all things are become new. There's three things that take place that Ruth does before she goes to, before she goes to Boaz. She washes herself. She cleanses herself. She puts on perfume, and then she changes her clothes. When we come to Jesus, those three things change for us too. He will wash us. And he will cleanse us of our sins in his precious blood. When we come to Jesus, he washes us and cleanses us of our sin. When we come to Jesus, he gives us the oil of gladness, the Bible says. And he gives us this oil of worship in exchange for the oil of sadness and for mourning. When we come to Jesus, there's a new scent. We had the stench of death on us, but now we have the beautiful fragrance of life in Jesus Christ placed upon us. And we come to Jesus he changes our clothes. He changes our grave clothes to robes of righteousness and robes of glory and robes of peace and purity in exchange for those grave clothes of sin and of death. So when we come to Jesus, everything changes. Nothing it remains the same, but we must come to him. And I hope in your relationship with Christ, or I hope you've come to a point where when you've come to Christ, you realize that nothing has been the same, that there is parts of your life that is marked by a significant change because that you can only trace back to Jesus is in my life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. The second thing that we do is when we come to Jesus, we have to understand that when we come, we have to come willfully. It has to be willingly. Ruth, even though she was kind of being, being kind of coached a little bit by, by Naomi, we have to understand this. Ruth did not do this simply because Naomi wanted to. Ruth wanted this too. Ruth wanted Boaz as her husband. There was a love and a respect that had developed between, between Ruth and Boaz, and she wanted to come. Look at verse number five, and I'm reading this from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, so Ruth said to her, I will do everything that you say. All this advice that Naomi is giving her, she says, I'll do everything you say. And she says, so she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything that her mother-in-law had charged her to do. She responds in obedience. She responds in willful obedience. And it indicates that Ruth is willing to end her time of mourning and she loves Boaz and is hopeful that, she, that he feels the same way. And the dramatic way that she makes this declaration by coming to him at night when no one's around where he could have rejected her without losing any face with anyone else Shows, his, shows her respect and love for him as well. Because, you know, who, who was it that said a long time ago that if you love something, you got to let it go, and if it returns, then that's how you, I think that was Christina Aguilera or somebody like that, right? Um, but what's interesting to me, I find it so appropriate, is that Boaz, where is Boaz at? He's in the threshing floor, and he's winnowing. Winnowing, the, Jesus actually talked about winnowing too. He said, Jesus said, I have come so that I can separate the wheat from the tares. This is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has come to do in redeeming us. He has thrown us up 
the wheat from the tares and separating out the wheat from the tares. And you know what separates us as wheat from tares? is coming to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you are transformed from being a tare that will be cast away to being wheat that is held onto as a fine treasure. As a beautiful crop or a beautiful fruit of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. When you come to Jesus... You have to come willfully. And in many ways, the cross is that threshing floor moment for Jesus when he died for our sins. He died to pay our sin debt. He made salvation available to us. We must come to that cross willingly. There are a lot of people today who are trying to find salvation by thinking, I got to work it. I got to earn it. I got to do something to secure it myself. All of that took place at the threshing floor, at the cross. All he asks is, come to me at the cross and you will find salvation. So the question this morning for us all is, have you come yet to that threshing floor of grace? Have you trusted Christ? Have you noticed your need for him and willfully come? Not because grandma pestered you so much to finally go forward in a service one day and talk to the preacher. Not because mom and dad said, hey, you know, we're Christians and it's time for you to be a Christian too. Or because maybe you were at camp one day and you saw everybody else getting saved, so you thought, well, I'm going to go through with that too because I don't want to be left out. No, this has to be a personal, willing time of coming to Jesus personally to be redeemed by him. Have you been to the threshing floor of grace? Have you identified your need as a Savior? And if you haven't, will today be the day that you come? The third thing that we have to understand is that when you come to Jesus, he will, he will, on the authority of God's word, I know this, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he will receive you. When you come to Jesus, he will receive you. He will not turn you away. He will not hold you off and say, let me think about it for a while. Look at verse number 11 of our text. He says, now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say. Isn't that interesting? Ruth said the same thing. I will do all that you have asked of me, Naomi. Boaz says, I will do all that you say. Look at these two guys. Look at how much they love each other. I'll do whatever it takes so that we can be together. They're both said that. They've both committed that one, one to another. I will do whatever it takes so that we can be together. Since all the people in my town know that you're a woman of notable, notable character. He quickly agrees to her agreement. He doesn't sit and think. He doesn't say to her, you know what, let me think about this for a while. He doesn't, throw, he doesn't even throw up, first of all, that there's something, there's something standing in the way, which we're going to talk about next week. That there's a closer relative who has first rights to redeem. He doesn't even throw that up yet. He says, no, I want you to. I want to be your husband as much as you want to be my wife. He quickly agrees to her request. He was ready and he was willing to redeem her. And I truly believe that it had not been the law that, the Ruth, that Ruth the widow had to come to Boaz first. Boaz would have already come to her to offer. I truly believe that. But he was respectful of the law, waiting for her to come and make that known to him. And here's the thing that we have to understand. No matter how much you may think or how much the enemy may convince you to think that you're not wanted or that you are damaged goods or that you've wandered too far that God's grace can't reach, you have to understand that Jesus is always willing and he is always ready to redeem us if we will come to him. He's always ready. He's always willing. Matter of fact, everything that's been taking place in your life to this moment has been God trying to bring you and call you to his son, Jesus Christ, to the threshing floor, to the grace. Every moment that you've gone through, God has been working for your redemption. But there's one thing that stands in the way. You have to be willing to come. He's not going to force his grace on you. 
He's going to shed his grace. He's going to make it available, but you have to come to him. That possibility of redemption was available because Boaz was there. Because of Boaz's presence, redemption was available. Because God is there and because he sent Jesus Christ, his son, redemption is available, but we must come to him and we must claim it. We have to get out of that period of mourning in our sins and make it known to the Lord. I want life in you. I don't want death apart from you anymore. We have to come willfully. And it doesn't matter how unredeemable, unlovable you may have made yourself to think that you are, you will never be farther than God's loving grace and his mercy and his redemptive power can reach. I love what my father-in-law used to always say. He says, Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save from the uttermost to the guttermost. Some people think, no, you don't know where I've been or what I've done or who I've done it with. I don't have to know. Jesus knew when he was on the cross and his blood covered that if you would receive him as your savior. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says this, the Lord does not delay his promise or he's not slack concerning his promise as some people understand that, but he is patient with you and he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't wanna hold anyone out. And when you come to him, he doesn't say, you know what, let me think it over. Let me take a look at your account and see if your account is up to date. No, he says, welcome. Welcome, my child, and I will do, and I have done all that it took for you to be redeemed. When we come to Christ, the other thing that we have to understand is that he will replace our fear with reassurance. When we come to Christ, he replaces our fear with reassurance in him. I love what 1 John chapter 4, verse number 18 says. He says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love or complete love, mature love drives out all fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. This teaches us something about the the level of God's redemption, that when God redeems us of our sins and when he forgives us of our sins, he forgives completely. There is no more need to fear the weight of our sins. Once you are saved and once it has been placed under the blood of Christ, it can never be brought back to your account again. That's the level and that's the depth of our forgiveness. Can we still sin after we've been saved? Absolutely. Did Boaz and Ruth, wait, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give away a spoiler. I already have. Did Boaz and Ruth probably have fights once they got married? Yes, they probably did. It doesn't mean that they were giving up on one another. God's not going to give up on us because we sin. And what he's saying is there is no fear in love, in perfect love. This is the way God loves us. He loves us so much, and he's never stopped loving us. And he doesn't love us more simply because we've come to him. He's thankful for that, but he still loves you in your lostness. But he wants you to come to him because only when we come to him can he redeem us. Boaz told Ruth not to fear. In other words, don't, don't wonder where, whether I truly love you and want you. And in some cases, a redeemer relationship was just this legal type of thing. Redeemers would go and redeem a field and they would take this, this person or this widow as a wife and there was no love involved. It was just because they wanted to acquire more land and more power. It had nothing to do with this widow and it was basically she was a necessary evil to acquire this land. And so there was not a loving relationship. This is not the case with Boaz and Ruth. With Boaz and Ruth, what led to the acquisition of the land was the love that he had for Ruth. Understand that God is not in the, God is not in the business of just collecting scalps so that he can put it on the board and say, look how many people I've redeemed. God wants to redeem us all because he loves us. It was his love that drove his redemption. We have been brought close to him by his love. 
There's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. And a relationship with Jesus is not just a legal arrangement. And that's what a lot of people have approached Jesus with. I got to make sure that once I'm saved now, I do all the right things because that's going to keep God on my good side. Now, God already proved that he was on our good side and on our side with the cross. And that will never go away. You could turn your back on him. You can mock him. You can walk far from him. But if you are truly a child of God, first of all, you won't really want to do that. But if you go through dry seasons when that happens, it doesn't change God's love for you and it doesn't change the fact that you are his child and that you are in a relationship with him. You do not have to fear. It's not a legal arrangement. It is an arrangement that is fueled by his love for us and his redeeming grace. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him. You probably know the rest of it, right? Because he first loved us. We love him because he's the one who initiated it. He's the one who said, it's okay. You don't have to have fear. I will reassure you with the love that I've given you. Be assured of Christ's love for you this morning. And then the last thing is, when you come to Jesus, you can trust that he's always going to keep his promise. When you come to Jesus, you can trust that he's always going to keep his promise. We live in a day-to-day where divorce is 50-50, right? Half the people that walk down the aisle do so, and they may not make it all the way till death do us part. We are kind of in a throwaway society. If things don't work out, we can always just start over again. Here's what we have to understand about Jesus. When we come to him, and we become his bride, and he becomes our groom, which is a picture that the Bible gives us, there is no divorce. He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't cast us away. He always keeps his promise. There's another guy who's in this picture that we're going to meet next week. He's closer in the family line than, than, uh, than Boaz is to Elimelech. And so what he has to do and what Boaz has to say to Ruth is, look, I'd go ahead and start, I'd go ahead and start waking up the city council and we go, down to, we go down to the courthouse and get this taken care of right now if we have to. But there's one thing that has to be taken place. This, this guy has to turn away his rights. And then he says this. He says, that's the very first thing I'm going to do in the morning. Now, Boaz is at a very busy season of his life. He doesn't just say, hey, as soon as winnowing season is over with, he says, as soon as the sun rises tomorrow, I'm going to take care of this. I give you my word. So he wants to take care of it as soon as he can. And as a seal on the promise he's made, he also shows his willingness to be her provider. He gives her wheat from the threshing floor. She's no longer getting the scraps. She's no longer getting what's left over. She's no longer an employee in his eyes, just kind of just there, kind of living off the land. She is now his family, and he's going to provide for her everything that is needed. And there's some things that we have to get from this and some precious promises that Jesus has made to us if we are in Christ is that he has promised to be with us. He's promised to never leave us. He's promised to never forsake us. He will always be there. He will never leave. He will never give up on you. No matter how hard we may be to love, he will never give up. He's also promised to save us and to seal us. That no matter how much the enemy may pull at us and tug at us and try to separate us from him, the book of Romans says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor principality, nor powers of the air, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And he's also promised one day that he is going to come and claim his bride. 
That grain that he gave her to go was a promise. You are mine, and I'm going to make sure that everybody knows it. Jesus has the same attitude about us. One day, he is coming again to claim us as his church, as his bride. Until then, he has given us a scarf full of grain in the form of his Holy Spirit, who is with us, who dwells with us, who empowers us, who leads us, who illuminates us to his word and to his truth. And until that day, that's who we have living within us, that he is always with us. He's never left us. He's never forsaked us. He's given us his spirit as a collateral that he will always keep his promise. So as we close out this morning, very quickly, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. The first question is, have you been changed by Jesus? Because when you come to him, you're changed. And you may be sitting here saying this morning, I don't know if I feel a change. I don't know if I've noticed a change. The change is usually inward before it's outward. When you come to Jesus, he will change you. Have you been changed by being saved in Jesus' name. The question is, if you have not, are you willing to come to him today? The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. Do not put off until tomorrow what you know today holds because you don't know what a day may bring forth. Ruth could have said, man, I'll go tomorrow. I'll go in the morning. I'll do whatever. But she said, no, I'm going to do this because nothing is going to stand in the way of what I know that I need and what I know that I want. The question is, are you willing to come to him today? And do you need to be reassured of Christ's love for you? You may say, hey, I'm saved. I, I just haven't been walking with him closely, and life has just kind of started to mount up and seems like a mountain in my way. Do you need to be reassured to revisit that threshing floor and be reminded of how God loves you, what he's done to secure you, the sacrifice he's paid to ransom you? Be reassured of his grace and his mercy and his love. And then the final question is, do you need to have greater faith? Do you need to hold on to his promises? Do you need to be reminded of them? Do you need to review them? See, we're told to kind of review God's goodness because we are a people who are kind of like a what have you done for me lately kind of people. We remember the hard stuff, but we don't really remember the good stuff a lot. We keep a laundry list more than we keep a, more than we keep a, a gift list. So do we need to be reminded of just how God, how good God is?